We are working through this next segment. Um, this one is more, we, so we started out, this is more around uh, depending, depending on the Lord, I think is a crucial part. We talked a little bit about it throughout our time, that depending on the Lord is a key part of our witness. And I can't um, uh, emphasize that more because, um, yeah, we do. We make it really difficult because we expect results from ourselves. And, um, and so the Apostle Paul one of the smartest people to ever uh, at least be portrayed to us in the scriptures had a life of incredible dependency on the gospel. Even in his preaching, despite the fact that he could, uh, I mean, if you think about what it means to be um, a Pharisee, a person whose handle on the Bible, being able to recite whole books or whole segments of the law, Without the benefit of chapter and verse, I mean, that's a contemporary uh, inclusion in the Bible. This is an incredible, this is a man with incredible um, knowledge of the scriptures. But then let's um, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I think it was James Montgomery Boyce. I don't know. But one of the, my favorite phrases when it comes to the faith is what you win the people with is what you win the people to. What you win the people with is what you win the people to. If people come to your church because they love the choir, when the choir leaves, so shall they. Right? If you win people with the word of God, as long as the word of God is there and constant, they will stay. What you win the people with is what you win the people to. So regardless of who coined the phrase, it's the Apostle Paul who elevates that truth by saying of everything that I know. Now, you've got you to take that phrase that when I was among you, I claim to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's an interesting statement. It sounds, it's not just neatly packaged, but when you consider who said it, the person who is responsible for having written for us the majority of the New Testament and would have known all of what we call the Old Testament. And in his testimony as an apostle says that he received a revelation from the Lord and saw things that he couldn't even utter. So what we do know that Paul knew was mind-blowing, and then the stuff that we don't know that he knew is mind-blowing. But yet, when he comes into the Corinthian church, he says, I claim to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. If it's good enough for Paul, then that level of dependency upon the gospel ought to be good enough for us. Right? So again, I hope that this is resonating deeply with the person out there who feels so ill-equipped, unready, and unprepared. Total dependency upon the gospel is what you need in order to make disciples. Now, exactly what does that look like? What you win the people with is what you win the people to. I'm going to try to be extremely practical here. And so I have just enjoyed all of my little conversations. And I'm telling you, 
You have no idea how much I'm paying attention, whether you drove me from the airport or whether we just kind of chit-chatted briefly over a piece of pie. I've been trying to sample the culture of Brantford. I'm just trying to understand who I'm working with, right? And because it's just been a crucial part of my, my development here. Um, and you're going to see where that kind of bleeds through. So as I'm, as I'm thinking about this passage, um, and John, you'll have to forgive me. These are, they're somewhat alliterated, but not very well. Uh, but, but they all start with W's. I've got three points. Uh, all right. And so, um, the first one is when, when Paul says, and I brethren came to you and did not come to you with excellency of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. The question that I ask is, what is the testimony of rep or reputation of God that has been built in your life and in the life of this church? When I think about the testimony of Paul, you can't escape it. We all know. Here's a guy that was totally destroying and ravaging the church, ran into Jesus over on the Damascus Road, and his life was radically transformed. Paul condenses his testimony in this most beautiful way. Listen to this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Listen how Paul takes his personal testimony and interweaves it into the declaration of the gospel. In verse 12, and I thank uh, Jesus Christ, or I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundantly with faith uh, and love, which are in Christ. This is a faithful saying that um, to me, yeah, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me, the first, excuse me, in me first, Christ might show um, all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone is wise, to who God, God who is alone, wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a beautiful thing in how. The gospel and Paul's life are just kind of woven together in that one conversation. Why am I bringing this up? I think about his words and he talked about his total dependency upon the gospel. Um, I think about his words when he says that he was with them in weakness and in fear and in much trembling over in First Corinthians again. I want you to follow this. In this first point, I'm asking the question. It begs the question. What is the testimony or reputation that God has built both in your life and in the life of this local fellowship? Now, I get it. If you are a fish currently in the water and have always been in the water, you might not know what the water is. Right. Because it's always been your context. So I'm a I'm a fish from the outside. And so I'm just going to give you some insights as to things that I have heard as a part of your testimony, which I believe collectively represents the cultural signature, the reputation of God and how he works through lives of the people of Brantford. Listen to this. I have heard stories of God redeeming people through the brokenness of marriage or near to destruction of marriages, fallen businesses, Catholicism and little children coming to faith. These are things there might be other testimonies out here, but I have. Uh, but, and, and I'm going to tell you, this is not the signature of gospel hope. So check this out. You come to gospel hope. Everybody is impacted by the fact that you got one black pastor, and one white pastor. 
And in the, in the Bible Belt, in a city that is radically divided, we have all these platforms to discuss robust theological and political issues where people who otherwise wouldn't share the same pews are now sharing the same pews. That's the signature. That's the thing that, that attracts people. People come to our church and they love that, enjoy that. But here, all the conversations that I have are around, again, people coming from Catholicism, people who have children that have come to know the Lord through the family uh, uh, discipleship, marriages that were at risk but the Lord redeemed, and people even coming to faith as a result of him digging them out of the rubble of falling, falling businesses. These are, th- these are recurrent themes. I don't know if you heard this, because, again, this is your water that you swim in. But these are things that really stand up to me. Like when I'm, when I'm just chit-chatting, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. I've heard this story five times from, you know, four or five different people that have all of these features. Why is that important? This is important because the testimony points to a missional target. In other words, sometimes when we're doing, so when you're individually sharing your faith, I get it. You share with whoever is in your swim lane. But there is something key about the culture of redemption that God creates in your local fellowship that uniquely empowers you to bring other people who have that same life issue or that same life distinction. And they can come in and find community here and be like, wow, okay, God saved you from that also. Like that is a signature. The thing that God has done most, that's why local assemblies have value because they have a distinctive <laughs> testimonial of how God has worked. So this Greek word for testimony is, is martyrion, which sounds like the word martyr, right? Sounds like the word martyr. What did you say? <laughs> Macaroni? What? what? It's ridiculous. <laughs> Scratch that from the record. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that. yeah. Uh, but the word testimony comes from the Greek word martyrion, right? Reminds you of martyr. So in other words, the testimony of God. What is it that is happening that represents the what that's the martyrion of this place? Um, how is it that God gave his life up for us? What did you gain and how have you changed? These are critical parts of testimony. Do you know your own testimony? Like the Apostle Paul, he's very candid, formerly a blasphemer, formerly a persecutor of the church, uh, an insolent man, not deserving of salvation, but by his grace has been put in the ministry. And then he says, But the long suffering that God showed toward me. So in other words, Paul says, even the length of time that it took for the Lord to redeem me is a part of the pattern that he would use as a testimony in the lives of others. So if you are a child who is saved at a very young age, that's part of the pattern. I used to feel guilty about getting saved as a kid because I wanted one of those testimonies of having been on drugs and fell out of a helicopter at, you know, 10,000 feet, broke my neck, and God miraculously got me. But then I realized that the world needs the testimonies of people who, what? So you've always believed and you never left the faith? Not even in college? Nope. And I had one moment where I thought about uh, uh, joining another group, which was going to be like a cult, like the Nation of Islam. And I went home and told my mom. My mom said, a family that stays together prays together. And I was like, that's not in the Bible because I was a smarty pants. I go back to school and can't find the guy. He's been sucked off the planet. Never saw him again. The guy who was quote unquote witnessing to me because his, 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 his thing was, you don't have to abandon Jesus to join the nation of Islam. You just need to think about him in a, in a way that is contextualized for the plight of your people. 
you know. And, and he used to sit right next to me in history class, and I got back there, and he was gone. And I was like, I asked the teacher, I was like, where's, I can't even remember the dude's name. I was like, where's, and she was like, I don't know. He didn't come back. And it wasn't like semester in. This was like middle of, like, like we had, this was a Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. We were there on Monday. He was gone on Wednesday. The only difference was I told my mom about it on Tuesday. <laughs> right, spoop, he gone, right? Reverse rapture. You know what I mean? He didn't go up. He just, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, and I never forget that because it's a part of God protecting me. So I wasn't, you know, unsaved. I was just untested. And so if someone starts testing my faith, and then it was from that point that I became this kind of one of the moments that really would galvanize me becoming like this, ah, for going after other groups, because this guy was talking me into something that I thought I could have my cake and eat it too. I'll still be a Christian, but I also want to be a part of this, you know, this socially empowered stuff, this thing. This is not a new way, right? I'm talking about a conversation in 1992. If you think that this whole landscape is new, it's not. But that's a part of my conversation. That's a part of my testimony. That's a part of how the Lord radically engaged in my life both the timing and the, the type of interruption that the Lord gave brought in my life, even for someone who was saved as a young child. And so I both have the and, and so that's just a part of the unique tapestry of my testimony and how the gospel works in my life. I'm sharing this with you, not just as a showcase of my testimony, but so that you can become literate in your own testimony. How did the Lord uniquely weave his power into your life, regardless of when you came to know him? Because that is conversation is a crucial part of how God not just hopes to use you, wants to use you. He wants to use you in disciple making in that way. And then you have this collective testimony that is shared that is also kind of a part of the how God wants to showcase his grace. So as a church, it's an action item. As you're thinking about those three people, think about the culture of your local fellowship and how God has created a testimony that would call and keep people here or would capture their hearts. Think about these great testimonies of those who have been converted from Catholicism, right? So does this, I don't know if you need to stand outside there, the, you know, at the cathedral with a, with a sign that says, at Brantford we do it better. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> I don't know how you do it, but, but there is a pipeline of discipleship from that particular uh, faith tradition. That is, it, it is a key signature here. I've had four conversations that featured that kind of missional character in nature. Take full advantage of that, right? Um, and then also, so I would just, just, just very simply say, um, when you're thinking about your testimony, think about what you gave up or what he gave up for you and what you gave up for him. Uh, what did you gain and how have you changed? These are key things. Um, the other point that I would make is this, do not share the gospel in a vacuum, understand the gospel, know its language, you know, be able to articulate it in its raw scriptural terms, but don't share it in a vacuum. Always let it be viewed through the lens of what the Lord is doing in your life, actively and historically. Does anybody remember? There's a few faces in here that will, but there are some who will not. And please help me with the modern day equivalent. Does anybody remember the Viewmaster? If you know what a Viewmaster is, raise your hand. Okay. All right. Do they have anything like that now amongst children's toys? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Viewmaster. All right. So really quickly. The view method, well, I, so the, the millennials are getting into retro stuff, like my daughter who's 17 wants cassette tapes and actual vinyl now, so she'll probably be asking for a, a Viewmaster soon. Is someone, Lorena, are you looking up the, 
You show what Viewmaster is? So the Viewmaster was this little disc that had all of these little images on them, right? These stills, right? Uh, just little, and they were on a semi-transparent piece of paper, tiny, 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 and you couldn't really make them out. But they were deeply concentrated images. And you would put them inside of this little thing that looked like uh, half a set of binoculars, uh, family, right? Half a set of binoculars, and you would put them in there, and you would look at the Viewmaster, and you would click like this, and it was almost like a visual storybook. Some of them had words at the bottom of the page, or some of them were just images, like mine was just Winnie the Pooh. I may have got the cheap version, because there were no words. I would just see Winnie getting honey, and then Winnie not getting honey, Winnie getting chased by bees, and that was it. I made it through all 16. Boom, I'm going outside. You know, that's it for the Viewmaster. But what I'm getting to is the Viewmaster was, was fascinating, even if the stories were boring, because these little tiny images, once I would look through these little kind of half binocular things, the viewer, um, I could see it, and it looked like the picture was, what, right there. It was up close and personal. It was vivid. That's what your life does to the gospel. So the gospel in raw terms is potent. It is powerful. But it's this little concentrated pictures that the regular person sometimes can't fully make out. But when you slide that thing into your life and allow them to look through it. Oh, that's what you're talking about. That's why talking about understanding how the Lord is working in your life and being able to take the gospel like Paul did and said, hey, uh, I thank the Lord Jesus Christ or uh, who enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor and an insolent man to obtain mercy because I did it ignorantly. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundantly. So in other words, all the, the proceeds of the gospel, he plugs them into his life. Here's what grace looked like over against my sin. Here's what mercy looked like over against where my life was headed. I was an insolent man and a blasphemer. But here's what the long suffering of God looks like. So all of the, the, again, so the gospel has these proceeds. It's like this grocery bag that never ends. It's just stuff just keeps coming out of it if we'll plug it into our lives. So disciple making, get gospel literacy. But also take your life and say, Lord, how did you use that in me? So don't just use the gospel vocabulary, but be able to communicate actually how you used it. Uh, there was a, any, is, is the rainbow vacuum big up here? Anybody heard of a rainbow? Yeah, yeah, you've heard of the rainbow. What's that? Water, yeah, yeah, it's got, so it's got, stirs up this water. It's supposed to be super duper powerful. It does, has all these functions. Uh, like it's supposed to be like an air freshener. If you sprinkle some little, uh, you know, flavor pellets in there or whatever the case may be, uh, it, it does all this stuff. But it's supposed to be this super duper powerful vacuum. Here's the deal. It costs like $3,000. But you could get it for free if you get five other people to listen to a presentation and one of them actually buys. Like they have this, this thing. Young lady came out to my house. She brought the rainbow vacuum. She's doing her thing because one of my boys had bought one. And so he's trying to knock the price down on his. And I was like, yeah, I'll agree to to listen to it. But I'm not committing to buying anything. So the girl gets there. And I mean, she's going nuts, man. She's, you know, doing like this to our furniture. She's just going to town and using the vacuum. And she wants us to buy it. I can tell that she's selling this thing with the intent for me to buy. But she doesn't know that I've already decided in my heart that there ain't no way I'm buying. I'm paying three thousand dollars for a vacuum. Right. However, I did make a deal. I was like, there's this one stain in my bedroom in front of the television that since we've lived in this house, we've never been able to get up. And I said, I'll tell you what. And I'm probably going to, you know, this will affect my marriage, but I will buy this vacuum if you can get that stain up. And so she goes up there. And again, 
It, hey, if it had the power to get that up, that's the worst stain in our house. I was I would have I would have borrowed the money, got it out of the kids' college fund, or maybe I, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. But I was going to buy this vacuum if she could get that stain up because I gave my word. But here's the deal. I mean, she went up there and she's just working on that stain and working. And she was like, um, doesn't that look better? And I'm like, Mm-mm. all stains look better when they're wet. I was like, let's let this bad boy dry, you know, <laughs> and then let's just see what happens. But why was I willing to commit to something far and away outside my budget, outside of the realm of my comfort level? Because if it could handle the worst thing in my life, I was prepared to make as big a sacrifice in my life for a vacuum. What am I talking about? Am I selling vacuums today or am I selling gospel? I'm talking about the gospel. You see, if the blood of Jesus Christ can really give me real forgiveness, if the power of God, if the grace of God can really work out the worst thing in my life, man, I'm willing to give that a shot. And I'm telling you, if, if, if in normal everyday life people are willing to go out on a limb like that, trust me, they'll do it for the gospel too. But they need to see a piece of fabric that's already been worked out. And so that was my thing. She was coming in. She didn't have a piece of fabric to show me where this thing had gotten. I was saying she had pictures like this is what it looked like before. And I'm like, well, how long has this thing been on there? My thing's been on for like six years. But again, what I'm getting to is the power of the gospel against the fabric of our lives is a compelling testimony, even for the hardest of hearts. And that's why us sharing the gospel should also come with a showcase of what mercy looks like real time. You got to understand that when religious words get lots of tracks or get religious words gets lots of rotation, they lose their definition. But there's nothing like a real life that gives fresh uh, uh, vitality to words that they've heard all the time. Everybody's heard about prayer. Everybody's heard the word mercy. Everybody's heard grace. Everybody's heard sanctification. Everybody's heard the word forgiveness. But what does it look like against a real dirty life? What is the, the great before and after? Right. So, again, this is all about that relationship capital and bring it into living color uh, right into your life. There's an, a second thing that this passage says that I want us to pay attention to. And that is. Um, he says, and brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or wisdom, declaring the testimony of God. So the testimony of God, how does he work? What has he done in my life? For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I do not want to take for granted our knowledge of the gospel. But I want to ask the question, do you know where the gospel gaps are both here as a church and in your life and also in the lives of your three? Do you know where the gospel gaps are? Gospel. What is a gospel gap? That is where there are certain aspects of what the gospel does that are not fully clear or not fully understood or not fully known. Think about specifically, let's get this really narrow because I know I talk a lot. Think about the three people. Do you know the gospel gaps in their life? What are gospel gaps? Gospel gaps are places where if you declare the gospel, it seems like a foreign language because people really don't know what that means or, or how they need that. So let's go there. First Corinthians chapter 15, looking at verses three through six. Here's the formal outlay of the gospel. For I deliver to you, I'll give you a chance to get there. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses three through six. For I deliver to you as of first importance. So the Apostle Paul says of everything that I know about in the Bible, this is the thing of, 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 that's most important. Which I also received 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then with the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today, though some have fallen asleep. There are four parts of this particular gospel presentation that I always like to focus on. Feel free to create your own gospel uh, outline, but these are mine. When I look at the gospel, I think about the voluntary, substitutionary, necessary, and victorious death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's voluntary because he did it out of love. It's substitutionary because it should have been me. It's necessary because only uh, blood can satisfy the wrath of God. And it's in victory because he was raised with victory over sin, death and the devil. This is my little unique compact for how I remember the gospel. I have grained this into my brain. And even if I'm talking to someone who does not know what voluntary, substitutionary, necessary, all that stuff means, I'm thinking about what is their language. And so I begin to think about our cultural language. And, and I also look for gospel gaps. And what I mean by gospel gaps is where is it that the voluntary, substitutionary and necessary and victorious death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ would not naturally resonate. Now, here's why I share this here. And, and I'll make this point and then I'll unpack these. Not every aspect of the gospel resonates with everybody all of the time, but some aspect of the gospel resonates with everyone at some point in time. You know, what I mean? <laughs> right, let's do it again. Uh, not every aspect of the gospel resonates with everyone all of the time. OK, but some aspect of the gospel resonates with everyone at some point in time. Think again about your own testimony. When you came to know Christ, your the word sanctification, justification and glorification was probably far, far, far from your heart. Some of you were drawn in by the love of God. That was the aspect. Once you got in, you started to learn about these other features and you were beneficiaries of these other features. But but the justification for some of you, the justification is what drew you. You may have never called it justification, but the fact that you could be made right with God resonated with you. And that is all an outgrowth of the of the substitutionary or the substitutionary nature of the death or the, or the, or the necessary nature of Jesus' death. Does that make sense? Again, use your own terms, but I want you to get some kind of compact presentation of the gospel. Use your own terms. But in disciple making, think about your three people and ask yourself, what is the most attractive aspect of the gospel to them? So let's talk about some of these gospel gaps. So I'm talking about gospel gaps as well as gospel Things, green lights that people light up for. When we talk about the voluntary, uh, uh, here's what I'm going to do. When I talk about these four things that I've outlined, I'm going to give you some naturally resident cultural expressions where I know God has already teed the culture up to enjoy gospel conversation. Watch this. So when we talk about the voluntary death of Jesus, Romans chapter five, verse eight tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And even in that example, the Lord gives us this thing that, hey, man, for a good man, somebody would die. But man, for somebody that's like raunchy like us, like why would anybody die? The, the, the greatest expression of love is this. We see this in, in our culture. 
God's love is not contingent on my change, but it is the catalyst for my change. Our culture loves stories of authentic goodwill. Do they not? I mean, what's the stuff that people really stand up and applaud about when they hear somebody about some, whether it be a rich person or not even a rich, just a regular person that does something for somebody else of deep need with no strings attached? Do you know why that screams to the human heart? Because we are wired to hear about the love of God. And so in our cultural context, that's why those things resonate so deeply, because people are on the hunt for real love with no strings attached. And that's the voluntary love that is expressed in Christ through the cross. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, well. Yeah. All right, let's go. Here we go. I, all right. All right. So we're going to we're going to get in the old cutlass and we're going to have one foot on the brake and on the gas. So the engine is going to be going, but we're still going to go slow. All right. <laughs> all right. So um, substitutionary Isaiah chapter 53, verse four tells us what it says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we are yet esteemed as stricken and smitten by God. He was esteemed by God and, and stricken and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was a trans- chastisement uh, that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The substitutionary atonement has a cultural picture today, believe it or not. And here it is in culture. Um, we can identify with the wrongly accused narrative. Think about the uh, when we take, think about the justice projects and stuff like that. What is all the rage? I mean, we stop flipping the channels when we find out about this guy who is in prison for 30 years for something that he didn't do and was exonerated by DNA evidence. Are those cultures, not, are those stories not pervasive in our culture? Do you know why? People people resonate with the idea of substitutionary guilt where somebody else took the fall for someone. They think it's it's scandalous. Like, that's just not right. You're right. And that's exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. You see that? So the Lord has already painted a picture of the substitutionary atonement within culture and caused it to resonate with the hearts of people because we hate that kind of injustice. Well, guess what? That's the kind of injustice that Christ endured for us. So this so these are some natural points of entry. I'm sharing these because I'm thinking about your three and some natural points of entry where you can be praying about opportunities to share this, because these are the kinds of stories that may resonate with them. And these are the kinds of stories that also Christ, one of the greatest dramas of all time. The death of Jesus Christ was necessary. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter two, verse twenty nine, that without the shedding of blood, the remission of sin is impossible. Uh, That necessary death of Jesus is so because God demands justice. Now, someone may think that that makes God really mean until you think about the cultural narrative of justice. If you were an adult or thereabouts or a, a cognitive sentient being at the time uh, of, the, of 9-11, you will remember that um, one of the things that we wanted as a country is that we wanted somebody to answer for that. And even if we got who it was wrong, at least somebody's paying. Would anybody agree that that was kind of the national undertone? Somebody needed to pay for 9-11, right? Why? Because we as a culture recognize the value of justice. When there is a wrong done, somebody has to pay. Now, let's make it less aggressive and a little bit more narrow. You're at a traffic light and you witness or either a part of a hit and run. What do we want done? 
We want justice. Let's say you're involved in something as simple as a fender bender and the person gets out and it's not that big of a deal to you because you've got a brother that know how to pull dents and buff out stuff. You can get it fixed on your own. But the person jumps out and goes, oh, man, that ain't nothing. Doesn't it make you angry? Because that person doesn't have a heart that recognizes the need for justice. Yeah, even if I'm the one that's going to pay for the damages, I want you to recognize that there is damage and that it's your fault. Our culture is littered with examples of how we love the justice narrative, right? I mean, again, what happens, unfortunately, or whenever there is a a crime within our local context, the greatest cries of it is, we want justice, right? What's happening with the, if you watch the R. Kelly thing, right? I mean, we don't even know the depths or the degrees of this man's sexual abuse, but man, he's out there, there's a demand for justice, Well, that is exactly what the gospel is about. It's God jumping out of his rear-ended automobile in traffic going, somebody going to fix this. And he goes, you know what? I'll take care of it. But we we are a culture hungry for justice. So we can identify with the cross because right there, there is this great rear-end or head-on collision with God. And we don't have the resources to pay. And God says, somebody got to get my car fixed. Somebody's got to get my son fixed. Somebody's got to get, get my humanity and my creation fixed. Oh, you don't have the cash? I'll do it. But we love justice. So if we demand justice, how much more can our creator demand justice? And that is the narrative of the gospel. It is a justice narrative. But the justice is resting on the shoulders of our Lord, Jesus Christ. And then finally, victory. It is a, it is a great statement of victory over death. We all want victory over death. What's the cultural narrative? Diet plans, insurance policies, and cosmetic surgery. (laughs) All of them are our cultural illustrations that we want to have victory over death. Man, how can I shave some pounds off of this chassis? Get it back to, you know, man, I mean, it would be great victory if I could achieve a six-pack at 45, and I'm actually on that path. You know what I mean? I'm early on the path, but but I want to go there, right? But we would consider that as I'm, I'm, I'm beating death. I'm, 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 even if I don't beat death, at least I want to look good on the way. Right. I'm beating the clock like we have a we have a, an insatiable appetite to, 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 to do something about this time, this this thing that's crunching up on us. Right. So if it's not through our diet plans, it's through our insurance policies. Right. When we when we get an insurance policy, you know, like for the family or something like that, what are we saying? I want to make sure that even in my death, that I am doing something for my family, that where death wasn't able to stop it. Think about that. That's what all of these gestures are about. And then, of course, cosmetic surgery is the is the is the, is the biggest of all of them. You know, we uh, again. I won't give an extended commentary on it, but yeah, it's just us wanting to roll back time. Just want to just just how do I beat death? How do I beat it? We would love to do that. But the Bible tells us the only real way to beat it is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, that it is in the cross of Christ that actual real victory is had over death. So all these things resonate uh, with our culture. So I'll say this. Not every aspect of the gospel resonates with everyone all of the time. But some aspect of the gospel resonates with everyone at some point in time, because all the things that the gospel uniquely provides are tied to deep human need. Final point, and then we can go to our, our lunch. Uh, how am I on question and answer time? Am I, because I'm just, three minutes? Oh, perfect. You know I mean? That's all I got. Okay, okay, okay. I'm close, I'm, I'm close, I promise. Um, 
In verse 3, Paul says, uh, back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of power and of spirit. Oh, excuse me, of, the, of spirit uh, and of power, that your faith should not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Uh, notice that he says that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I would ask the question in a very practical way for you as a church. Do you know where the margins are? Do you know where the marginalized people groups are? Those that are that are currently their lives are marked by weakness and fear and trembling. Because these were great points of entry for the Apostle Paul. Yes, in Acts chapter 17, we see him witnessing to the blue bloods, the aristocrats. But he also was very careful to not only reason with those in the synagogue and to preach to those who were of the upper echelon, but he also thought it necessary to become all things to all men that he might save some. And one of the great points of entry for us uh, with the gospel locally as a church uh, are the margins. So one of the things that um, we do locally at Gospel Hope is that we look for marginalized people groups. All right. Where are the uh, people that are caught up in human trafficking? And I don't know how to get to them, but there's organizations that do. Where are the um, if, if foster care is an issue in our area, how can we get involved with an organization and deploy the gospel or people to get involved in foster care? Um, if it's uh, affordable housing is a challenge, who can we partner with that in a, in a reasonable way will give us that? Uh, our domestic violence. Uh, we don't own a domestic violence uh, safe house for women who are coming out of abused relationships, but we have a relationship with one. We go over, love on them, prepare meals uh, every third Wednesday and then also conduct a Bible study. And then the Lord advanced the relationship. Check this out. There are women who are graduating from the house who have never lived on their own before. And what is the number one risk for a woman who's never lived on her own that's coming out of a domestic violence, an abusive relationship? To go back to the, the abusive relationship because they can't make it on their own. So where is the great entry point for the church for this marginalized woman and her and her children for us to become her extended family? And listen to this. This is some of the simplest stuff in disciple making. We go over to help her unpack the things for her house. Never has has never organized cabinets before. Doesn't know how to go grocery shopping with five kids. I don't know how to do that either. But uh, can we provide respite by uh, just kind of playing with the kids while she walks the aisles? Has never really made a grocery list that reflected a plan. It was always shopping out of emergency. The children have never really had a properly prepared meal. They're always eating out of boxes, that stuff that comes through a microwave. You see all of these opportunities just to show love, get close, demonstrate care. And it's not like we're coming out of pocket feeding or, or showing or, or giving a bunch of meals, right? And I don't have a problem with coat closet and soup kitchen ministry, but here's an, ex- here's an opportunity to become this woman's family. And none of this sounds like heavy lifting, just to show you how to organize your cabinets, you're seeing love. And what love is she seeing? We voluntarily are doing it, and you are not going to get an invoice from us that says, all right, cabinet organization and apartment unpacking. You know, here you go, Gospel Hope Church, 600 bucks. That's not going to happen. She's seeing a statement of voluntary love. We just want to do this. And, and there is no secret. We're not doing this as secret agents. She knows that this is the church. And she knows that the motivation is that this is what we believe that we ought to be doing. And so, again, marginalized people groups in marginalized situations who need a hand, people without boots and with people with boots that have no straps. Right. These are great opportunities to get involved institutionally.
and build some of these relationships. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to close there. Um, I believe. Uh, so, again, depending, depending on the Lord and depending on the gospel to paint the opportunity for us to get involved in people's lives. So. Um, OK, we do have time for questions. How much time do I have? Okay, give me a give me a specific time because my my uh, fifteen. All right, my wing lady is uh, working on time here. Uh, all right, let's go. Questions? Yes, sir. Oh yeah. So the cultural narrative on the voluntary was that we all love a feel good story of somebody who doesn't have to reaching into the lives of somebody who does not have, like the haves and the haves nots, right? So when we hear about, you know, when we used to hear about Oprah Winfrey giving away cars until we found out that everybody had to pay taxes on them, right? <laughs> but, uh, and then for substitute, we all, um, the hair stands up on all of our, uh, the back of our necks when we think about the narrative of someone being unjustly um, uh, penalized or incarcerated, and then they're later found out to be innocent. And then when we find out that they're innocent, um, and then what they get, like, they were in there for like 20 years and they get a check for what? Like $162,000? And no matter what that amount is, we all go, that's not enough, right? So we're all acquainted with the injustice or the justice narrative, how something else needs to be done. That's not an effective response. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Yeah. Right. Payout. Yeah. The, the bigger payout. Yeah. So if they get your boy for 30 years, that means I'm coming out. I'm 75. I'm expecting a payout. I'm just going to let you know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but uh, but that is a that is a powerful story, especially when someone comes to know Christ under those circumstances. I love to hear that, um, that they um, that they've got that grudgeless lifestyle. Only Christ can create that. Next question. How do you handle um, witnessing to somebody when they are claiming to be Christian, but you see that their life isn't? Yeah. I, that's good. So, so it happens all the time. You've got to give me some specifics. How specific? What aspect of the gospel are they missing out on? Are they frustrating the grace of God by living a life that does not reflect redemption? Um, you know, there's usually the deficiency. Usually when I see a believer that's living, or excuse me, when I see someone who says they are a believer who is not living like a believer, I typically can link that back to a misunderstanding of the gospel in some way. So um, I'll let you continue. Mm-hmm. But they today don't live a life that represents the Lord whatsoever, and um, now all they say is that they believe it, but there's no there's no reason to back it up. Gotcha. So, so I, I think the, if you want to call it the argument or the statement, there is that anything in life that we really believe, we show some sense of fidelity to it. I love to lean on the same analogies that the Lord gives us, like in marriage. Like I would find it hard pressed for a guy to say that I truly, truly, truly love my wife, but I truly, truly, truly just plan on continuing to cheat on her. 
I might have an episode of adultery, but I will not live a lifestyle of adultery and say that I authentically love that woman. And usually when you get in people's situation like that, they can see it. That's why that's I think the just kind of bringing it down to like a, a localized cultural narrative or, um, you know, a person that says that they love their job. I love it, love it, love it, but they never do their work nor show up on time. I just have a hard time. You can't say you love your job. You know, you love your check. You don't love your job. You love the people you work with, but you don't love your job. Does that make sense? Am I making sense to just kind of I'm a huge examples guy. I love to kind of back people in the corner with their own logic. And so that's kind of my, my style of apologetics, if you will. I don't know if that's helping. OK. Next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did mention that you sit around with the kids and you ask, hey, where have you seen the Lord today and sex? Can you give us some other practical ways that your family, um, that you're um, discipling your family? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So also at the at the table, we have a little um, tissue box that I decided, I t- well, I took the tissue box and then I covered it in some nice uh, um, um, wallpaper so that it doesn't look like a tissue box anymore. And I just sat down one day and uh, wrote out a series of questions that I would love for us to wrestle with. And um, and I wanted to know what they thought about those ideas. And I cut them up and I put them in the box. And so it is somewhat of like a theological, social, cultural potluck. And so they'll reach in. And so it, it does something cool. Right. And so, you know, as 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 parents who try to be faithful, you're always going to get a little bit of a not a hiccup, but people being like, Ugh. so what happens now is so I did the first round of questions. Right. It was obvious that it all came from me. And it was really robust. It was like, hey, how would you define, you know, sanctification or whatever? And it was as a kid, that can be heavy. But anyway, it gives me an opportunity to see how much they know or whether or not they have in their hearts a little example that that works. Um, And then I said, hey, why don't you guys I feel like I'm fatiguing you with my style of questions. Why don't you guys put some in there? So I had the wife and I had the kids to I was like, you're responsible for at least five questions each. So and then they would start doing them. And that provided us with a balance of, um, I want to call it cultural trivia, because they didn't always ask theological questions, but it allowed me to see where their hearts were. And then the funny part was when somebody reaches in and they see it's my handwriting, they'd be like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Or when they see another handwriting, they're like, oh, okay, this is going to be fun. Um, But I'm not here for fun. I'm here for, you know, (laughs) fun plus. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you incorporate hospitality with those who are unsaved? Yeah. So I, um, the last time, a, 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 so a group of Jehovah's Witnesses came to my house. And uh, because I knew I needed to repent from being argumentative as opposed to truly evangelistic, um, I decided to not only let them into the house, but I also, I try to go above and beyond, like providing, you know, water, um, uh, different things. So we have a scheduled time that we get together. I'm, I'm bringing in cookies until they tell me that they're diabetic. I, I go out and I get Jimmy John's or whatever your local sandwich shop is. Like, like I make them tell me no. And so I want to love on them, uh, in addition to going through their study. Cause I know that the study is going to be tenuous and, um, uh, they've been coming now for months. And so I just try to build, build that platform of showing hospitality. Um, to them. That's my primary platform for that. And then I'm always on the lookout. Uh, so right now I would love to, I'm praying for, 
another set of relationships that are not necessarily cult driven. But if someone would just want to read the Bible with me um, and just kind of walk through some stuff, I'm, I'm open to that. Um, and I'm, so I'm just looking for a candidate. I had one. There was a guy who showed up to our church off of Google reviews who uh, had never been to a church before. And I met him at his job, which was a Dunkin Donuts. And uh, we just kind of sat down and started reading through some stuff. And then the devil got involved and some stuff happened in his family. And he hasn't been able to meet for a couple of weeks. But like I'm, I'm on deck and I text him. So I'm always just looking for little opportunities to just sit down and read the Bible. Those were some of the ways when I was working. Um, uh, the Bible study was one, you know, that we started on the job. And the other way was just some of the other things that you the examples you heard me share of how to. Is this your question? Maintain or to, to inroads. How am I? creating relationships with the world and the people that I used to work with, I still meet with them for lunch. Like I'm very strategic about, Hey, how are you doing? How, how's the office? Da, 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 da. Interested in doing breakfast. Yeah. And so I still have, I still try to keep some of those relationships. Yeah. I just, I just love that. For some of us who are hospitable, uh, hospitable, a lot of times it's, um, uh, within, within the body. Mm-hmm. So I'm just challenged sometimes a little bit. Listen, how often do you have Wednesday just over for a meal or yeah. So anytime we host something like men and meat, the thing that we did in my house with the steaks, uh, T-bones, 20-something T-bones and 19 guys at my house, uh, I invited and asked them to invite unbelievers as well. So those are just anything that we are doing out of my home, I try to invite uh, unbelievers in as a, as a regular um, routine. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah. Father in heaven, thanks.